You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. How are we doing this morning? Good, good, good to see you guys. My name is John. I'm our pastor of Family Discipleship. If you've got a Bible, you can flip open to Romans 1, where we started this series three weeks ago. I like Tim, Tim said, we're in week four of why I'm a Christian. And uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, for the last three weeks, uh, we have essentially been providing uh, positive Evidence, not proof per se, but evidences for why you might consider uh, the Christian faith. Uh, in, in some ways, you could say that we've been digging down underneath the surface to find the substance underneath our faith. Uh, this morning, I'm going to take a slightly different tack, same idea, but I'm actually going to start to dig underneath our doubts a bit and help us consider what's going on underneath the surface of our doubts. What is the nature of doubting, specifically in our culture? What might we do about it? How might we handle it? We thought it would be a good way to end the teaching content for the series before next week where we get into some of y'all's questions. So let's start in Romans 1, starting in verse 16, where we started in in uh, week one. Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. If you like to mark in the Bible, you might just want to mark that phrase, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is in some ways Paul's way of just saying for everyone. Regardless of cultural distinctives, for everyone coming from any background, God's love has been expressed to us through Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, because God is coming after everyone, all different kinds of people. Keep going, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Once again, if you like to mark in your Bibles, you may want to mark that phrase, suppress the truth. You could even mark who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Come back to that. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." All right, I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and check out week one where we really did more of a full breakdown of this passage. I'm not going to do that with us again this morning, but I want to emphasize one particular aspect of this passage that we didn't get into as much in week one. And it's really interesting to me. So this is a particularly heady, logical section of Scripture where Paul introduces the foundation for complex philosophical arguments like the cosmological and the teleological arguments, and Yet, I find it very fascinating that he starts this entire passage with the statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why I find that so interesting. Shame is not a matter of raw, brute, rational facts and rationality, is it? 
Think about shame. Just think about shame in your own life. Shame is particularly emotional and a social factor. Where there are no groups of people, shame doesn't have a lot of power. Shame thrives in social and emotional settings. It's interesting to me as well, a few verses later in verse 18, where Paul says that all people, that men are guilty of suppressing the truth. Now there's something working inside of us to hide, to withhold, to push down the truth. And then he tells us why. It's because of our unrighteousness, that by our unrighteousness, that we have a moral skin in the game that we are trying. These two phrases in this passage are going to kind of give us the framework for everything we're going to talk about this morning when it comes to digging down underneath what's going on with our doubts. Because I think those two phrases, these two ideas, make it clear that Paul knows there's a lot more going on underneath the surface of our doubts than just raw philosophical rationality. And I'll tell you right up front, here's why this is massively important. In our culture, we are uniquely wired to churn doubt in people. Which means you are going to need to know how to deal with doubt, how to handle doubt, uh, both if you're a Christian trying to follow Jesus in culture, but also if you're just someone who wants to consider the claims of Jesus in any kind of real serious way, you're going to have to know some doubt is coming, some differences, disbeliefs are coming. You're going to have to know how to deal with that. So my goal today is to just kind of help us be helpful. What do I mean when I say that we're particularly uniquely wired to churn out doubt? Well, one thing that Adam talked about in week one is that it's modern Westerners, we're prone to this idea of exclusive rationality. The idea that you should only believe things that can be 100% proven, which is factually not true. It's not how any of us come to any of our worldview. We all come to our worldview through a variety of personal, emotional, social, and rational factors all working together. But even if you dismiss that for a second and think about it, the idea, the propensity towards believing we should only take things by exclusive rationality actually helps give doubt more power and force in our lives. Why would I say that? Because it lowers the standard for what doubt needs to win. So, So like the data scientist in the video is saying is, even if something is overwhelmingly the most statistically logical conclusion to come to, doubt just has to sneak in and say, yeah, but can you 100% prove it? And if the answer is no, doubt thinks it's one. In our culture, doubt's one. Another aspect of what's going on in our culture is that we have a predisposition towards what social scientists would call uh, deconstruction or deconstructionism. It's the simple idea that deconstructing traditional ways of doing things is in vogue. It's, very, you, it's kind of seen as intellectual and you are smart and wise, the more critical and suspicious and skeptical of things you are. And in some ways, listen, deconstruction is about tearing down unhelpful traditional ways of doing things. There are absolutely beautiful ways where this is and needs to happen. I would argue that the more we look for and tear down systemic racism in our culture, the more our culture looks a bit like Jesus's kingdom, and we should keep going about that. Anything that looks remotely like rape culture and the need for a Me Too movement, let's deconstruct the mess out of that at every turn. The problem problem happens when a culture takes on an air of deconstructionism. As G.K. Chesterton would say, when you come upon a fence, you don't just immediately tear it down and say there's no reason for that fence to be there. Before you tear down the fence, you need to ask, why was this fence put here? 
And our culture is built to where it's just, ah, oh, you tore down a fence. Good job. Cool. That's awesome. And it, it perpetuates, it churns, it celebrates doubt. All right, with that in mind, I've got three points for us about doubt. The first one's a little bit broader, and then the second two will dig in more deeply onto the nature of doubt. But here's the first one. Doubts are full of hidden beliefs. If you're going to have any chance at dealing with doubts in our culture, you need to know that doubts are full of hidden beliefs. So Michael Polanyi is a Hungarian-British polymath, which means he's an academic scholar in a wide variety of fields, or simply put, he's smarter than you in many fields than you will ever be in one. He, uh, Polanyi wrote a book, a philosophical work called Personal Knowledge, talking about the way we come to the knowledge we have, and he included a chapter called The Critique of Doubt, where he argued, Doubt always contains an element of belief. Doubt and belief are ultimately equivalent. The doubting of any explicit statement denies one belief in favor of other beliefs which are not doubted for the time being. All right, here's the idea of what he's saying. Doubt generally presents itself as a question. Can we really know? Are we sure? I'll give you a silly example. If you take your kids to a soccer game and you think, I'm not so sure we're going to win this game, that's a doubt, and underneath it is the positive belief statement, I can clearly see the athletes for the other team are twice the size of my child. We're in trouble. There's a pot, that's a silly example. Let me get a lot more serious very quickly. One of the largest times of doubt in my life came when I was in college, my sophomore year. I've talked about this before in sermons, but uh, I found out that my dad was having an affair on my mom, and he eventually decided to divorce her, and it led to our family falling apart. There's a lot of pain, and in the midst of my pain, I started to ask a question uh, that is very common to many of us who have gone through suffering. For me, it was, God, if you're good and you are strong enough to stop this, why aren't you? Would you stop this? The, the larger, more philosophical way to ask this question is, if God is all good, he's all loving, and he's all powerful, then why does evil exist at all? Why is there human suffering in the world? Man, this is a powerful question in the midst of horrible, real examples like what we just found out happened to Faye Swetlick, the little six-year-old from Casey. Uh, for, for many atheists, this is not just a doubt about Christian belief. This is airtight proof. There cannot be a God, and if there was, what kind of monstrous God might he be? No, hear me. Uh, there's a lot to this. We have done entire series digging into the question of suffering and how God deals with it. I'm not going to do it justice as a four-minute example, okay? If you are hurting, uh, we would love to respond to you with a lot of empathy and walking through the midst of that with you that I can't do right now in this sermon, okay? So I'm, I'm just saying if we just look at it intellectually, the big idea of how could evil exist— and as I did in college, as I was dealing with my pain, what I started to find out is there were some hidden positive beliefs just under the surface of how is this happening? Why does evil exist? One of them that is really helpful is when I came to realize part of what I was really saying was it's not possible for an all-knowing God to have any reasons why he might allow evil to continue that I can't wrap my head around. And you'll find that that hidden belief is scrutinizable. 
Because if he's all-knowing and I'm not, of course he could have reasons that I can't wrap my head around. Uh Uh-oh. And the doubt starts to break down a little when you take the time to scrutinize it the same way it's telling you to scrutinize your initial belief. At another level for me, there were times where I would really blame God for what was going on in my family. And it would be, why aren't you doing anything? What's going on? And the assumption, the hidden belief is that God of the universe has never done, isn't currently doing, and isn't going to in the future do anything about evil in the world. That's a hidden belief that doesn't describe the God of the Bible at all. God of the Bible who hates evil more than any of us ever will. God of the Bible who's actively restraining by common grace the full extent of evil in the world. God of the Bible who entered into human pain and suffering and the life and death of Jesus when he took pain and suffering onto himself. God of the Bible who's the God of all comfort because he knows. God who promises someday he will do away with all pain and suffering. You know, there were times where I realized I was wasting time blaming God when he was going, hey, John, I'm on your team in this. I hate it too. He literally says, I hate divorce. And all of a sudden, my doubts started to fall apart upon scrutiny. It's not always easy to see, but the truth is in the midst of all of our doubt, there are hidden positive beliefs, and if you can find them and get community and read and get other people to help you see them, you actually find out that your doubts are scrutinizable, just like the belief they want you to doubt in the first place. I'm going to pause before we dig deeper into the nature of doubt. I just want to give us some really practical tips for how to deal with doubt that you're going to need to have. Just based on this one idea that all doubts have hidden beliefs in the midst of them. Step one, you need to expect that doubt will come. Step one, how to deal with your doubts. You need to expect that doubt will come. If you don't expect doubt to come, it will be a great deal more troubling when it does. And biblically, there's no indication that you're not going to have to deal with doubt in your life. Sometimes this is kind of a silly religious idea. Well, if I just am a good enough Christian and have enough faith, I'll never wrestle with doubt. Nuh-uh. Jude verse 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. You know why that's in the Bible? Because the assumption is you're going to deal with doubt. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. You know why that's in the Bible? Because there's going to be times when you're faithless. Man, our Christian belief is that Jesus had perfect faith, not us. Of course we're going to wrestle with doubt. You should see it coming. Step two, when it comes, you need to ask yourself a question. Is this the fog or is this acute doubt? Here's what I mean. Sometimes we wrestle with really specific questions that are hard to wrap our brain around. That's called acute doubt. Other times we just deal with the fog It's hard to describe. If you've been there, you know. It's this gray swirl of, I don't know, just everything feels hard to wrap many things around. Nothing feels solid. God feels far away. I don't know how to describe it exactly. When you're dealing with the fog, that is a spiritual type of doubt that we respond to in community with prayer. When you're dealing with acute doubt, we also deal with that in community and prayer, and then we go on to step three and four you got to know if you're dealing with the fog or acute doubt. Step three, write them down. Doubt loves to perpetuate itself in this kind of gray, swirly, unspoken, not black and white. Write it down. Figure out, are there any acute doubts I'm dealing with? And write them down on paper where you can then see it and think about it and analyze it. Step four, as you write them down, look for the hidden beliefs in your doubt. This takes time 
And the next two points we're going to get into in doubt will help you be able to do this. But sometimes you're going to need other people to speak in. You're going to need to read some books. You're going to need to ask a pastor to help or a coach or somebody. Do all of that. Find the hidden beliefs and then scrutinize those beliefs with just as much force as the doubt wanted you to scrutinize your initial belief. And what you will often find is you were about to throw away a fence that was actually helpful and necessary for a doubt that was not as solid as it presented itself on first pass. Step five, continue to practice following Jesus. I I really can't, if you're a believer and you're dealing with doubt, I can't emphasize enough how important this is. We were talking about this in teaching team this week, and someone just asked the question, can you name one person we know who has walked away from faith in Jesus, but was faithfully walking in the practices of prayer, meditating on God's word, community, confession, encouragement, any of that? And I'm not saying that person doesn't exist, but we couldn't think of anyone. No one came to mind. One of our pastors eventually said, you know, the truth is you become prayerless years before you become faithless. And I'm just going to throw this out there for, for, it may only be for a handful of us in the room, but in our culture that is particularly uniquely wired to churn doubt in us, be really careful about filling your ears and your mind with nonstop skepticism about Jesus. Um, So whether it's podcasts, whether it's friends, like we wouldn't do that with any other covenant relationship. Like I'll give you an example. My covenant relationship with my wife. If she found out that on a weekly basis I'm talking to my friends and I'm listening to a podcast that they put on called Marriage is the Worst and You Should Run Away from Your Wife, and every time they hung out with me, they were like, dude, what's up with her? She's not, she's not real. Love's not real. She's messed up before. You, way too much effort. This isn't worth it. Would she be okay with that? Of course not. But somehow we think, you know, oh, I'm just going to listen to the Liturgist podcast every day. And weird, I don't feel as close to Jesus. Weird. It's not weird. It's expected. You already live in a culture that churns doubt in us. You can't feed it. Can't feed it. All right. That's just for the few of you who might have been helpful. That's our first reality. Doubts are full of hidden beliefs that are scrutinizable and assailable, and we need to. We need to doubt our doubts. The next two unpack more and more why this is so important. Doubt, or, uh, point number two. Doubts are socially formed. I think Paul is hinting at this when he starts Romans 1.16 with, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that shame social component. In every culture, certain things are normalized, and we are being socialized into them unbeknownst to us. Here, here's what I mean. Uh, Tim, who, who did the welcome before the video, uh, him and a few of our pastors went up to Charlotte because Tim's getting ready to plant a church in Charlotte. And uh, while they were there, uh, before he'd kind of settled where they wanted to center the church and kind of focus on, they went to this kind of trendy part of Charlotte called Noda. There is a quirky little coffee shop there called Smelly Cat Coffee. And while they were there, amongst generally hipster people who just kind of had a vibe of self-expression is the highest value. Like one guy was writing his dissertation about self-expression being the highest value and discovering yourself, and finding your dreams, and being true to yourself, and not letting any haters get in the way. Um, One of our pastors just noticed they're all dressed the exact same. Why does everyone's self-expression look the same? 
Like they were all wearing used boots that they had all bought at different secondhand stores, but they looked the exact same. They were all wearing the scarf. You know the scarf I'm talking about? <laughs> this scarf? And, and, and hey, hear me, hear me. This is silly, and you can pick on any group of people you want to. It's just funny when they're specifically espousing self-expression. You can't believe that raw, rational, logical evidence got them all to look the same, right? We're being socialized in ways we don't notice. This is silly in some ways, but it's actually happening at much deeper levels. So I just read this fascinating article about, it was unpacking research on the power of social networks. Here were some of their, what I found to be baffling conclusions. If a friend of yours becomes obese, you yourself are 45% more likely than chance to gain weight over the next two to four years. I think most of us say, okay, I can see that because they're, you know, my friend and, you know, it's a norm. I get that. But listen, more surprisingly, however, if a friend of your friend becomes obese, your likelihood of gaining weight increases by about 20% even if you don't know that person. Never met him. It actually goes another round past that where it's still a 10% increase. Their statistical study held true, good news, for losing weight as well as gaining weight. Uh, smoking habits, back pain, huh? Depression and general rates of happiness. Their conclusion was you are being socialized by people you've never even met in ways that are almost impossible to see happening. And the exact same thing is happening when it comes to our doubts. Here's how author and pastor Tim Keller explains it. He says, to move from religion to faith in Jesus to secularism is not so much a loss of faith as a shift into a new set of beliefs and into a new community of faith, one that draws the lines between orthodoxy and heresy in different places. You see what he's saying? There's a socializing factor going on in our doubts. Here's how I'd explain it. In America, uh, as I just observed pastorally, most people's doubts tend to move towards a very common set of hidden beliefs underneath them. That sounds something like this. Common beliefs in America. Belief in God is optional in order to have a full life of meaning, hope, and satisfaction. It's not necessarily bad. It's just optional. One option amongst many. As long as you don't harm others... Who gets to define harm? Doesn't matter now what we're talking about. But as long as you don't harm others, you should be free to live as you see fit. And the only way to become yourself is to discover your deepest desires and dreams. Belief in God isn't necessary for moral values and human rights. And lastly, there is little to no evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. As I observe, I find it interesting that the vast majority of people who don't consider Jesus or walk away from Jesus all end up with a very similar set of socialized normative doubts and beliefs. I don't believe that happened from raw, rational evidence analyzation. I think there are powerful socialization works that we are oftentimes blind to. We all end up being the know to guy at Smelly Cat Coffee, wearing the same doubt scarf, but thinking that raw, rational self-expression got us there. 
Sometimes it's really helpful to see how this works in other cultures that are different than ours. So for Paul, in this Roman culture where he was living, there was a deeply held belief that if society used its resources on poor people and the sick, the society could not sustain They believed that helping the poor would ruin civilization. Many people rejected Christianity outright for this deeply held social belief. Now, for most people in America, that's not a reason why they walk away from Jesus. Most of us would say, no, you have to help the poor. We'll find out later this year how much we disagree about the right ways to do that. But we mostly would all say, yeah, yeah, you got to. Like, mostly if you were, like, giving a quarter to someone, nobody's going to be like, no, society's about to fall apart. You can't do that. That's not where we are. The truth is every culture the gospel has gone into has come upon certain defeater beliefs that made faith in Jesus more difficult. And every culture the gospel has gone into, it has come with power and truth. It confronts those all different defeater beliefs in every place it goes to. And this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel despite the socializing normative pressure that tells me I should be. You can't believe that, that socialization factors aren't having an effect on you and your doubt. And let me just say this as well. This is part of why we deal with all of life. God calls us to deal with all of life, including our doubts, in community because he intends to be building us into a city on a hill, a counterculture in the midst of our culture where Jesus' ways and following him are normative. And we're all fighting for that together. If I was a different pastor, I would make a shameless plug here for followingjesustogether.com. I'm not there, though, so check it out. Followingjesustogether.com. All right, last point on doubt, point number three. When we scrutinize our doubts watching for socialized norms where we're really just becoming more American, we also need to be skeptical of our own doubts because there's personal biases in us. That point number three is that doubts are not neutral. Doubts are not neutral. So we talked about this more in week one, but Paul's insight in Romans 1.18 that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, man, that is rich in helping us examine our doubts. He says there is something at work in us to reject faith. I think this is pretty interesting and, and, and uh, easy to see. If you look back at that list of common American beliefs, if you wrote those down in your notes, um, if you look back at those, the pattern of them is, I don't, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the pattern is I get to be in charge of my whole life and no one gets to tell me what to do. Did you notice that? I think that's fascinating. Think about that for a second. Do you mean to tell me that pure, rational, logical examination of the universe led us all to believe that we should be our own gods and no one gets to confront us about anything? Color me skeptical. What if Paul is actually accurate that we have sinful hearts, that are, we have skin in the game? We have moral skin in the game. We, we would love to be in charge of our own lives and to be our own gods. And what if we've rationalized that under the lens of exclusive rationality? This is also not something new. The entire theme of the book of Judges is there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have a modern new version of it, but it's old. This is as old as the garden. This is the snake's temptation to Adam and Eve. You don't need to listen to God. You can be your own God. It'll go better. This is a modern version of the oldest trick in the book, quite literally. 
I love uh, the moments when um, non-believers see this in some form and are honest about it. So there's a famous author named Aldous Huxley. He wrote what I consider to be a great book, A Brave New World. It's one of the only books I ever was forced to read in school that I enjoyed. And uh, commenting later in his life, on his earlier rejection of Christian meaning in the universe and people who said, Jesus helps us understand the meaning of the universe. Listen to what he said. He said, for myself, as no doubt, for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. I think that's fascinating. What Huxley just admitted is he had a reason to not want to consider the claims of Jesus. He didn't want anyone being Lord, King, Master, and able to restrain him from being his own God and doing what he wanted to do. He was being honest that he was not neutral in the midst of his doubting, and none of us are. We are all biased by our own desires, our own hurts, our own experiences. None of us are disconnected or neutral. And this can lead to some really disastrous effects I think the story really illustrates it well. Near the end of World War II, the first German town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was a town called Ordruf, Germany. The Nazis tried to get rid of any evidence of the camp, but the Allied soldiers got there before they could finish doing this. American GIs witnessed hundreds of dead bodies. It was the first concentration camp that they had witnessed. A few late hours later upon arrival, General Patton, who is a seasoned, experienced soldier, walks upon the scene, arrives, and promptly vomits upon witnessing horrors he had never seen before. The next day, Patton brought the mayor of Ordruff and his wife to see for themselves what they had to have known was happening in their own town. He ordered the mayor and every able body in the town to dig graves for all of the hundreds of bodies that were found. After they dug the graves and conducted a funeral for the deceased, Patton found out that the mayor and his wife had hung themselves. Before their death, they left a note that read, We didn't know, but we knew. And that is a haunting depiction of what Paul is talking about when he says we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. It is amazing what we can not know, but really know at the same time. It's actually worse than we aren't neutral. We, we aren't just passively and unknowingly biased. We are subconsciously working against seeing the truth of ourselves and the universe. Uh, so, I talked about my dad earlier. It, I, I'll never forget, as a sophomore in college, seeing the shock on his face when he found out that me and my sisters weren't going to side with him in the divorce, and worse than that, that we expected him and wanted him to own and take responsibilities for what he was doing. But he had so convinced himself that he was in the right and my mom was a monster that it was actually shocking to him that everyone else didn't agree with him. He had suppressed the truth and deceived himself. 
And my mom isn't a saint. She's a sinner like the rest of us, but she's not a monster. And the truth is all of us are capable of doing this. When I was preparing for this sermon, I just spent some time thinking about how the reality is in my own life. I'm not neutral. I'm untrustworthy. Like at a thousand different levels. Do you know how many times I've convinced myself or others that tomorrow I'm really going to start becoming a slim, toned, vegetable-loving health nut? <laughs> like tomorrow, it's really going to happen. Do you know how many times I've told myself this sermon is going to go short? Um, but it's actually a lot more serious than that, too. Do you know how many times I've been a coward and not said the truth that I knew I needed to say for fear of hurting someone's feelings or causing conflict that I didn't want to deal with? Do you know how many days of my life I've spent worshiping my own comfort and my desires? Do you know how frequently, still, as a pastor who's been following Jesus for a few decades, there are days where I barely think about God? Never mind worship him or love him with my whole heart, soul, and mind. Do you know how American I am? <laughs> Every day. The truth is no one has caused me more pain in my life than I have. This is a fact. No one has deceived me more than me. No one's hurt me more. No one's uh, stilted my progress or slowed my growth more than me? You know how easy it would be for my closest friends and the staff here and my life group to sit in the back room every time I preach and just go, oh, 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 hypocrite. He doesn't live up to that standard. I don't live up to my own moral standards, never mind God's perfect ones. I'm not neutral, I'm not trustworthy. One of the easiest ways for me to see this is in the context of my marriage if my marriage to my beautiful wife, Erica, was based on pure, rational logic, do you know how many thousands of reasons she would have to doubt me, to distrust me, to be bitter towards me? You know how many great ideas and projects I've started that still remain unfinished around our house? Every one of you who have been to my house are like, we do. <laughs> we do. My only hope is that my wife's love and our marriage is built on grace. Because raw, rational analysis of the evidence would say she should never trust me again. And the, the same thing is true for my Christian faith. At the end of the day, I'm not a Christian because of raw, logical evidence, though I find much of it to be very compelling. I am a Christian because no doubt can convince me that I'm not actually sinful to the core. And what God has shown me there is I have so much indisputable evidence for it. 100% proof. Exclusive rationality, I am convinced of my sinfulness. I'm a Christian because doubt cannot convince me that my life or the world would actually be better if I was God with no one to tell me what to do and when I'm wrong and when I'm not seeing stuff accurately. 
Man, I I find all of the evidence compelling. I think it holds up to scrutiny. And at the end of the day, I am a Christian because Ephesians 1, God chose me in Jesus before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined me for adoption to himself as a son through Jesus Christ. And I think the Bible is a miracle that statistically, overwhelmingly holds up to any scrutiny you can throw at it. But the reason I'm a Christian is Colossians 1. God delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom I have redemption and the forgiveness of my sins, which I need. And man, I think theism and God is the best explanation for the evidence we see all over the universe, the universal realities of all cultures, regardless of all the differences. And the reason I'm a Christian, though, is Romans 5, 5 through 8. For while I was still weak, at the right time, Christ died died for the ungodly. That's me. God showed his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and God's love has been poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to me. In the midst of my untrustworthiness and my doubt and my sinfulness and my self-worship, God reached into my life and grabbed hold of me and brought me to himself. That's why I'm a Christian at the end of the day. And there is no bait and switch here. For those of you who are not believers, who are not following Jesus, I'm so glad you're here with whatever doubts you've got. I'll be down front if you want to talk at the end. I hope you find a group of people here who would mostly say to you in your doubts, yep, I've wrestled with that one too. And my hope is not in my perfect faithfulness or my ability to figure it all out, but that God of the universe loved me when he had no reason to, when I had done nothing to earn it, when all I had done was give him reasons to quit on me, he did not. He kept loving me all the way to the point of the cross where his son poured out righteous cosmic blood for me and no doubt can convince me that I don't need that. That's why I'm a Christian at the end of the day. I'm a Christian at the end of the day because I, I, uh, I know my brain too well to worship it. And I am convinced that God is not actually the one on trial with me smart enough to dictate whether he is just or not. It's quite the other way around. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna respond with communion and singing. Uh, Father God, thank you so much that you are a God of grace and a God of compassion. God, for, for every person in this room, thank you that they're here. Whether they're following you and wrestling with doubt, whether they're not following you, whether they're not even sure why they would consider following you, God, I just pray that in this moment that your spirit would, would tap on their heart and their mind, helping us all see that we don't have to check our brains at the gate but that you are actually smarter about what's going on in the universe than we are. And you actually know what we need, which is redemption and forgiveness from our sins. Father God, thank you that you are a God who has mercy on those who doubt, according to Jude 22. Thank you that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. God, I pray for for our church family that we would with, with some courage and steel in our spines that we would continue to pray faithfully and engage our neighbors with the hope of who you are and what you have done for us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is our only hope. God, I pray that we would be good at wrestling, that we would practice wrestling, 
that we would fight with doubts and take them to you and take them to community and, and consider the ways the doubts are scrutinizable, not just our initial beliefs. And I pray that your spirit would empower us for remaining a faithful witness to you in the midst of whatever moves our culture makes, that our love for our culture would always uh, grow faster than our, our distrust, and that in our neighbors and in our culture that we would see, so was I, but by the grace of God. And God, I pray that you'd continue to work, you'd continue to move, that your spirit would keep grabbing hearts and minds and souls and bringing them back to you and reconciling them through the blood of Jesus. That's our hope as a church family. We pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you guys would stand, we're gonna respond with communion and then singing.